behavioral insights. What are behavioral insights? Why do they matter? Why do they work? Uh, because we're irrational. Welcome to the local bar. So because behavioral insights work, um, it's important that we all understand what they are so that they don't work against us. So we are not, this may not be a big surprise, exactly rational creatures. Uh, why? Being rational, basically being rational is hard. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes discipline, it takes practice, it's a skill. Being rational is a skill. Um, so instead of being rational, a lot of the time, we use habits and shortcuts. Um, in fact, not uh, only are we not always rational, but sometimes we're not even conscious or aware of what we're doing. We've all had, this happened to everybody. You're when you're driving your car, you're driving home, you get home and you don't remember how you got there. Well, that was you driving, but um, you were thinking about something else. You were on autopilot. You were y y using habits really to get you home. Um, it doesn't mean we're not capable of paying close attention to our decisions or driving. Um, we are capable and you might even call that free will the slow, deliberative thinking that you engage in when you are being intentional. But a lot of times, we don't actually exercise that ability. And we probably exercise that ability uh, less often than we realize. So I want to start by sort of explaining the idea behind behavioral insights. Uh, what does that term mean? And one of the important things to know about it is that it's a very practical approach to solving problems. It's using behavioral psychology to solve problems, the insights gained from behavioral psychology. It's also related to behavioral economics. Um, the insight that's referred to here, in my opinion, is that if we want to change behavior, we have to look at and accept how we humans actually behave. It seems obvious, but we often ignore the reality of how we actually behave. And we just try to, we, we, we try to believe that we're rational and that we'll, if we know the right thing to do, then we'll just do it. But that doesn't happen. We know that doesn't happen. So, uh, for example, um, if you want people that you work with to wash their hands for 20 seconds, you could put a sign up in the bathroom by the sink saying, wash your hands for 20 seconds. And you can say why. La, 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 la. And maybe the first time people wash their hands, they'll do it for 20 seconds. Um, and then they'll stop. Um, you, behavioral insights approach, the degree to which it works is debatable, but we all heard the, the, the rule of thumb. Hum, happy birthday, twice. 
uh, while washing your hands in order to to make sure you get in 20 seconds. So that's something that might be more likely to, to work. You can commit, another example, you can commit to eating more healthily. And because you know what healthy foods are, then you'll just do that because it's good for you. But we know that doesn't work. Um, so a rule of thumb could be, uh, based on based on behavioral insights, could be don't do food shopping when you're hungry, right? Don't bring unhealthy choices into the kitchen um, because if they're there, you'll eat them. Instead of, say, ice cream, bring home a big, juicy watermelon. Um, why would you do that? You would do that because you have insight into human behavior and your human behavior. Really, really, really valuable insight to have. So behavioral insights, um, in a way it's a science, in a way it's an art. It's kind of undefined in a way. It's, it's almost like it's a hodgepodge of strategies or things that people have discovered will work. Um, and it's all about the fact, like I said, that we spend a lot of time not paying attention. And that's leveraged either on our behalf by other people or, it, I mean, it could be used against you too because we just act out habits. And also we take cues from our environment. Um, we rely on habits and take cues from our uh, environment. But it's not a bad thing necessarily. Um, imagine we probably wouldn't get very much done if we had to deliberate and think through every choice or action that we were going to take. So it's it's um, it's a strategy that's evolved to keep us alive. Sometimes you just gotta you know do that. You gotta follow your gut or follow a habit because it's worked in the past, and you don't have time to to labor over everything. But with behavioral insights, we can study not what we should do, but what we actually do. What are these habits? And understanding how we actually behave and why can help us make better choices, live better lives, and also can help other people get us to do things that they think we should do. An example uh, of this is choice architecture, which is this beautiful term. I love the term choice architecture. And that is simply just this fantastically simple, brilliant idea actually originated in a book called Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Choice architecture is really just designing how choices are presented to us. Uh, us, consumers, people. Um, it could be the number of choices, how the choices are described, the wording of the choices, or, and this is a biggie, if there is a default choice, a choice, the choice that's been made for you by default that you have to change. Um, also, the environment where you're making choices can influence the choice that you end up making. So if we go back to eating, if you want to eat healthier, then, you know, don't have the Doritos in the kitchen. You can be a better choice architect than that. That's affecting the environment where you'll be making choices. Um, there's another example that I think most men will uh, recognize and relate to. In public restrooms, in urinals, um, 
men, you may have noticed a little target inside the urinal, printed inside the urinal. It's a like a little fly or a bee or a bug of some sort. Um, and that was put there because it turns out that men were making a big mess in the restroom. Uh, they weren't practicing good aim. So having the having this object to aim at, this little target, um, was actually shown to reduce the mess being made by men by 40%. So uh, that's another aspect of, of uh, behavioral insights is the the strategies are implemented and then their effectiveness is studied. Uh, so it's practical, it's research-based, and they, they, in many cases, will use randomly controlled trials where possible to measure the effectiveness. Another example, just to sort of explain what it's about, is think about when you go to vote the order of the candidates on the ballot. That has been shown to impact the results uh, of the election, the order that the candidates appear on the ballot. If you're first on the ballot, then that has been shown to give you a little bump in the results. Just being first on the list, uh, kind of a scary thought. So related to behavioral insights, and really one of the aspects of human nature that behavioral insights leverage are our biases we are biased. It's just part of being human. Uh, bi and biases, in many cases, are errors that we make systematically or regularly. Uh, you might say that uh, having a bias is a conceptual error, uh, rather specifically than a mistake, uh, because they can be harder to notice. Often, we recognize our mistakes uh, quicker than recognizing if we have a flawed concept or a flawed view on the world. Um, and behavioral insights taps into these biases. Uh, one bias that we have is to take the easiest path. So with behavioral insights, we can be nudged in a direction if that direction can be made easier. Uh, that's what choice architects do when they set a default choice a choice that you have to opt out of rather than opt into. The idea being, oh, the choice was made for me, looks good, looks good enough, I'll leave it, move on. Um, we also have a bias towards things that are familiar to us. Uh, think about branding. Um, a main goal of building a brand is to make it a household word, uh, to build familiarity, it builds trust, if it's a word that is easily recognized, um, Kleenex, for God's sake, is a brand name for a tissue. Band-Aid is a brand name uh, word that that now means bandage. You know, people don't even think of it necessarily as a brand name anymore. And you may, in fact, feel the bias you have towards these brand names when you're at the store making choices. Uh, about what you're going to purchase. You need a bandage. You're like, oh, there's Band-Aids. That's, that's what I call them. That's exactly what I'm looking for. So, and that's the point. And this isn't necessarily a bad, dark thing. Um, it can 
strike you, uh, people as manipulative, but um, a strong, when it comes to brand names, a strong brand name also can means, a strong brand name also means a company or, or gives a company who has developed that brand a strong incentive to protect it. It takes a lot of money to build a brand and to make a brand a household uh, word, a lot of time and a lot of money. So the, uh, there's a strong incentive to protect that brand, and that's done by delivering quality, consistency, value, all those good things that are uh, that company that we want as consumers, uh, companies to bring to their products and their services. So it can be a good thing for consumers. Uh, but the point, the bigger point, is that it taps into uh, human behavior and psychology. We have a bandwagon bias. I guess you could call it a bandwagon bias. Um, it actually makes me think about um, our Instagram account, our LocoBot Instagram account with three followers last time I checked. Why would anyone follow that Instagram account with only three followers? Uh, but if I were to purchase followers, maybe I could purchase a few thousand followers, and then I'd likely see more real people follow the the account. Um, if a few thousand people are following, then it must be worth following, right? So behavioral insights is behind the practice of people purchasing social media followers. Um, our brains are just set up for bias. Uh, there, being biased actually is uh, enough of an advantage that it's something that that's just part of our makeup. In group bias is another one, uh, which is what you know you see all over Twitter, and our politics in the United States is all about that and confirmation bias, which is related to in-group bias. Um, there's actually a really interesting example of that that I want to share with you. I wanna, it, it's a recent study. Um, it's a re, there, so there was a recent study uh, that showed how partisan policy divisions may actually be produced by chance, not not by conviction. So I'm going to read this uh, to you from um, a book called Behavioral Insights by Michael Hallsworth and Elspeth Kirkman, published in 2020 by MIT Press, part of their Essential Knowledge series. Uh, this was a U.S.-focused experiment, and it recruited participants who identified as either Democrats or Republicans. Participants were placed into one of 10 online worlds in which they were asked whether they agreed or not with 20 statements. The 20 statements were about public issues, but had been constructed so they did not tap into pre-existing partisan fault lines. Rather than asking about abortion or gun rights, the questions asked whether participants agreed with statements like, the current lottery-based juror system should be replaced with full-time licensed professional jurors, or social media sites have a positive influence on people's daily lives. 
The twist was that in eight of the worlds, the participants were told whether mostly Democrats or Republicans were supporting the measure. The political alignment of others on the issue was made visible, but in two of the worlds, participants were not told about the views of others. They were just asked whether they agreed with the statements. The results were striking. When people were not aware of the views of others, there were hardly any differences between Democrats and Republicans in terms of support for the measures. When people could see how others were rating the statements, a strong partisan divide opened up. People aligned with their party. But here's the fascinating part. The topics that fell into the Democrat or Republican camps varied greatly between the eight different worlds. Sometimes Republicans ended up supporting a new juror system, and sometimes they opposed it. Rather than views reflecting some pre-existing ideological stance, partisan alignment seemed to be created by a tipping process that might just as easily have tipped the other way. Shocking, fascinating, and not all that surprising. And this is something I've actually noticed for a long time. I remember hearing years ago Noam Chomsky just mentioned almost in passing uh, that talking about something else, that political campaigns are run by marketing firms. And that realization, that understanding was a real cognitive shift for me. The issues that we talk about and that we feel concerned about may not even really be the issues that we actually care about but rather the issues that political parties know will segment us into marketing groups. It's important to clump an electorate into groups because you just can't earn votes one by one. You, so if you find an identity like race, ethnicity, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, psychological tendencies, etc., or an issue that animates a meaningfully large group of people that can be used to draw votes out of that group by leveraging in-group biases, etc. And the, these forces are strong and nothing new. Um, a quick example from the Civil War, which I think is a good example to draw from since in the United States we're on the brink of a civil war now, John Brown was an abolitionist, and in fact, statues of him have been vandalized and defaced over the years, um, and maybe even recently. I'm not entirely sure if, if John Brown was one of the many statues that have been targeted recently. But um, during the Civil War, northern North, uh, newspapers described him as a hero and a strong abolitionist. And in the South, newspapers characterized him as a crazy murderer. So I'm not a historian, and I'm not surprised that bias in the news isn't new, but I think we can all sometimes forget it's not new and then fall for a, another cognitive bias called the recency effect, where recent events, because they're easier to remember, are weighed more heavily than past events or potential future events. Um, 
which actually reminds me, there is something to be said here about Kafka traps. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to say it, uh, because I don't know what it is that should be said. Um, but if, but if you do, you can let me know. Behavioral insights also has its detractors and criticisms, of course. One, one criticism is that the approach focuses on our, focuses too heavily on our irrationality, our errors, and misses the value of heuristic thinking. Um, there's a lot to consider regarding our choices and actions. We have, it's, it's, it's a complicated world. And as I mentioned before, there's a cost uh, to being rational in terms of time and effort. And it may not always be worth it, right? Sometimes it's better to just do it. Sometimes uh, something that I mentioned earlier um, is also about manipulation or being paternalistic. Uh, it can be used to nudge us to do things that someone else thinks we should do or thinks is better for us or just responsible or just wants us to do. And of course, it doesn't always work or leads to unintended results. Behavior is complex. Tinkering with behavior can cause other behaviors. And are the tinkerers then responsible for the unintended consequences? Interventions can lead to desired results in general or, uh, or on a large scale but in unequal ways across different groups, leading to greater inequity. Is that ethical? Uh, what about dark patterns? Uh, dark patterns, uh, let me, dark patterns are, let me give you an example of a dark pattern. And uh, you can, you can learn, learn more about dark patterns at darkpatterns.org. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I subscribe to a satellite radio service. To enroll in this service or change my subscription, it's so easy. It's easy, it's all online, boom, you're done. To cancel the service, I have to call someone. Recently, I wanted to cancel my New York Times subscription. I, again, I signed up very easily online. To cancel that subscription, I had to contact someone. So those are dark patterns where the friction to do something that you're not wanted to do is greater than the almost no friction to do something that you, that, that in this case, the New York Times or this satellite subscription service wants me to do. So a definition of uh, dark patterns from Wikipedia is it's a user interface that has been carefully crafted to trick users into doing things such as buying overpriced insurance or signing up for recurring bills. Um, this was Harry Brignall coined the, the term in July of 2010, and uh, he, uh, he operates darkpatterns.org, which uh, is a pattern library that has all the information there about dark patterns. He shames the deceptive user interfaces. Um, actually, just, just yesterday, I needed to return an, an item to Amazon. And during the return process, which, let me be honest, is pretty good. I mean, you can return almost anything. 
and it's actually a very smooth process. But during the process, the way that the return options are presented, it encourages you to accept the return as an Amazon credit rather than, you know, what I wanted, which was a, a credit back to the credit card that I'd used. Um, but Amazon is nudging its users because it's better for Amazon to uh, have the return put on an Amazon as an Amazon credit, of course. So for me, all of this shows why it's important for individuals to understand our behavior and also to realize that during a transaction, like any transaction, buying a pencil, buying a home, engaging with anyone or anything, someone who clearly wants something from you, like your vote, that is the time to pay attention. That is the time to think slow and to understand your biases, understand your behavior, your human behavior. Stop. Think more slowly. And that is the time to exercise whatever free will you may have. Mm -hmm.